All right, good evening. Welcome to class. Um, did everybody get a book? Everybody needs to have a Holy Spirit book. We're going to be using a Bible. Um, we also have that bigger, thicker book, The 50 Core Truths. If you don't have one of those, it's not necessary, but it's a nice book to have on your own to be working through. It kind of goes a little bit deeper than what we do. Well, in some cases, some cases we go deeper than the book, but there's a lot of good stuff in the book as well. So tonight we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. What are some of the first things that pop into your mind when I say Holy Spirit? Images, thoughts, comforter. a comforter, revival, Trinity. Trinity. Someone shouting. Someone shouting. Okay. Amen. <laughs> hey I know you don't get that here, but you know that's okay. what's raised on. All right. What else? Yes. I think he's a great pointer. He points to Jesus. You see the Holy Spirit as a pointer, someone who's always pointing to Jesus. That's good. You guys said all the good answers. I think sometimes we think stuff like Casper the Friendly Ghost. I think sometimes we think stuff like the Force from Star Wars. I mean, I think sometimes culture can kind of feed our our imagination to sometimes have a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit uh, as almost some sort of impersonal, impersonal force that just kind of moves things. And the fact that he was called the Holy Ghost for so long, I mean, even that kind of can mess with us because we're not being possessed by something, we're being sealed by something and someone. So today we're going to kind of work on what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, but before we start, I'd love for us to pray together. So let's talk to the Lord. Father, we thank you so much that you are right here with us. And for those who have believed, you've placed your Holy Spirit inside of us. And as we spend time with you, we ask that you would grow us and change us. Speak clearly through your word. Uh, teach us. Change our hearts. Grow us. Allow us to be more like you. In Christ's name, amen. So with this study, what I find is the first two-thirds really is going to push us intellectually. I think it's hard. I mean, I think this is hard stuff that we're going to work through. The last third, I think, is going to push us kind of personally with the Lord. So it's going to be kind of hard stuff intellectually, and I think we're going to get pushed personally on the back end. So the top of page three. Uh, we're going to talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. Uh, and the Trinity is hard, obviously, and you're not going to come out of here feeling like, wow, I really understand the Trinity. In fact, my goal is almost humble us in that we just really can't totally understand the Trinity. Like it's a little, just it's just beyond us. Like we're never going to grab it and say, I got it. It's just a little beyond our reach or perhaps way beyond our reach. Uh, the Holy Spirit is one of three persons that make up the Godhead. God is one, and God is three. And God is one, and God is three. Like, those two things don't seem like they should go together, but those are both true of the God we worship. Uh, at the top there, the Westminster Shorter Catechism tries to explain it this way. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So there are three, and there is one. Both are true. Let's see what the Bible has to say about it. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. So one of the things we see as the Bible describes the Holy Spirit is they'll just put the Holy Spirit right in there in a line of descriptions of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's one of those. Verse 14 of chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's the last verse in that book. That's like his parting farewell. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit. All three are listed and each one is kind of given a distinct role or a certain thing that he's kind of describing them as. Jesus being the one who's giving grace, God who's giving love, the Father, and Jesus who's giving fellowship. Okay? In different places, they're described different ways. Okay? But here, those are the descriptions that are used. In Matthew 28, 19, which is the Great Commission, we're called to baptize people in the name of what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? All three are just listed. It's not like Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All on the same level in the way he's describing it, in the way he's 
talking about it. Uh, we see all in action in the baptism of Jesus. So in Luke chapter 3, it says 4 in your book, but it's chapter 3, typo, verses 21 through 23, we see Jesus go into the water. And when he's in the water, we hear the Father say, This is my Son, my beloved Son, of whom I am well pleased. Okay, so we see Jesus, we see the Father, but then descending from heaven like a dove, we see the Holy Spirit as well. All three persons in the Trinity are active and a part of the baptism of Jesus. Uh, if you have a Bible, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1 together. And I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Again, this is where we see each person of the Trinity described and talked about all together in one place. Verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Catch it again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. So we see each person of the Trinity has a distinct role here in what's happening in 1 Peter at the beginning. In fact, he introduces the letter with the reality that there are three persons in the Trinity. Uh, let's go a little bit deeper with the person idea. So, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, He's more than a force. He is more than just an entity. We would say the Holy Spirit is a person. Let's find some space. There's a blank page on the other side, and I'm going to give you some additional verses. So, we are told that the Holy Spirit grieves. Grieves. In Isaiah 63.10, and probably more well-known in Ephesians 4.30, we see the Holy Spirit being able to grieve, to be saddened, okay? We also see that the Holy Spirit loves. In Romans 15.30, He loves. He says that, it said that He has a mind. In Romans 8.27, we're told that He speaks. Can you guys see that? Easters, can you see that? He speaks. That's in multiple places. Acts 8.29, several other places in Acts, and then we'll also put down 1 Timothy 4.1. So he speaks. We're told that he knows. He knows the mind of God because he has the mind of God, but he knows. And he can be lied to. So that was in Acts 5. How did, that, how did that go for the person who lied to him in Acts 5? Do you remember? Not great, right? Yeah, it was Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and they lost their life for it. So that's Acts chapter 5. Okay? So he knows, 1 Corinthians 2.11, he speaks, he has a mind, he loves, he grieves. And we could go on and on. Uh, there's a point in Luke where it talks about Jesus and the Holy Spirit rejoicing together rejoicing together. The Holy Spirit rejoices with Jesus. It's like a holy high five. Woohoo! The Holy Spirit and Jesus. So, He is a person. Okay, so, with that in mind, the Father is a divine person. The Son is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. So, when I say a person, I don't mean when you look in the mirror, He looks like you, but was characteristic of a divine person. He is those things. And he has those qualities. If that's true, what do you suppose the Trinity looked like for all of eternity before anything was created? What did it look like for the triune God to spend time together throughout eternity? Give me some descriptions, some ideas, some pictures. What do you think? Perfection. Perfection? Good. Probably glory. Glory. What about relationally? Unity. Three persons, so unified. Good. What else? Fellowship. Fellowship. So, 
He speaks. He has a mind. He loves. He grieves. He knows. Like, they would be interacting with one another. There are three persons. They are one, but they're also a legit three. So there's actual communion and community and fellowship within the Trinity. There has been for all of eternity. So there wasn't a point when the Trinity thought, you know what? The Father's in the background saying, I am so bored with the Son of God. I am so bored with the Spirit. I need to create something else so I have someone else to talk to. Okay, so that would not have been the situation. Like In my mind, I picture it this way. It's like you find your favorite people to hang out with, you go to your favorite restaurant, you order your favorite meal, and you just hang and laugh and talk and enjoy the whole evening. And you just don't want that time to end. That's probably what it was like for the Trinity throughout all of eternity. It was a joyous, awesome time that they didn't want to end. It was out of this superabundance of love and community that they created, not out of a lack. Oftentimes we view God as being needy, like, wow, he was probably bored, so he created us to have something to play with. That's not at all how the Bible describes God. He's described as having a superabundance of grace and love, and he creates out of his abundance, not out of his lack. Out of his abundance, not out of his lack. How scary would it be if God was codependent with his creation? Bad. Bad. We go into the psychology of that, but that would be bad. We'll just, we'll just leave it there. Here's some additional thoughts at the bottom of page three. The three persons of the Trinity are co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, and one in essence, yet distinct in person and office, dwelling in perfect, harmonious unity, being three in one. God lives in perfect community and fellowship. The fact that God is three persons, yet one, God, means that there was change in to know. There was no loneliness. See, that's really wrong if you read it in. It's no, typo. No loneliness or lack of personal fellowship on God's part before creation. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't up there twiddling his thumbs, stroking his beard, saying, what am I going to do next? He enjoyed perfect fellowship okay, with himself for all of eternity. The Trinity is personal, relational, giving. They receive, they share in glory, they're abounding in love. In fact, the love and interpersonal fellowship and the sharing of glory have always been and will always be far more perfect than any communion we as finite human beings will ever have with God. What that means is, is if you think through your life and pick that moment in your life when you felt closest to God, or that experience that you just can't get out of your mind when you really felt like you connected with God, the Trinity experiences that on a much higher level constantly, all the time, always. Like that most beautiful moment that you can think of where you really met deeply with God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have that with one another always, all the time, on an even higher level than you can possibly experience it. Okay? That's what it's like to be the Trinity. Again, we're talking outside of what we can understand. But that seems like that's what it would be like to be part of the Trinity. God exists without need, without lack, and without loneliness. God dwells in an abundance of joy, an abundance of love, and happiness. All right. Mike? Yes, sir. Elohim? Well, it's the one. The word one okay. is plural, not... Well, we probably don't use the word Godhead a lot because, like, the word Godhead is used very... Well, it's not really used much in Scripture. So it's weird to say Godhead when it just says God, especially when there's distinction sometimes between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where perhaps it's talking about one person of the Trinity, not all three. It's a good question. It's just tricky. I'd be nervous just to start throwing it out there whenever. So <clears throat> that's... That's my quick response. Maybe not a good one, but that's what I got. Um, <clears throat> top of page four. So he lives in community, the Holy Spirit, but each part, of the Holy, each part of the Trinity, including the Holy Spirit, has a particular function. Okay, so each person in the Trinity is co-existent, co-eternal, co-equal, co-infinite with the others. Just saying that again. 
Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So from the very beginning where we see man being created, and you're going to, if you spend time in commentaries, some commentaries want to say here that the reason why this is plural is to give God extra respect. That the, the plural form is like a regal, as in like, like kings and queens, like the way you respect someone who is of high authority is by saying it in plural. Okay? But the reality is, as you go through the rest of Genesis, it doesn't say our image, it doesn't say our likeness, it speaks of him in a singular fashion. So, I'm not going to assume right here that they're not speaking of God in anything other than a plural form. Because God himself is speaking, they're quoting God himself. It's not man speaking about God. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, someone who read Genesis for the first time, who's you know living you know, like during the time of Moses, Moses, it doesn't mean they totally understood what they were reading, but we get a glimpse, even from the beginning, that there's a plural aspect to the nature of God. We were made in a relational form. We were made in a re with a relational nature. Here, we see that that reflects the relational nature of a God who is more than one. Next point. The Trinity is inseparable in operation as all three work together in harmony and common purpose, making their work ultimately indivisible. Yet, there seems to have some emphasis and distinction between each person of the Trinity. So it feels like we're talking out of both sides of our mouth there. There are times when we see that the Father is responsible for saving us. You'll see other times where it says the Son is responsible for saving us. You'll see other verses where it says it's the Holy Spirit who has washed us clean and purified us. So each member of the Trinity is responsible for our salvation. So they're all overlapping in terms of their work and presence and activity in many of the things that happen. But there's also times, like the verses we read at the beginning, where we see there's a distinction and perhaps an emphasis with each person of the Trinity. So all that to say, we have to realize that they're all usually working at the same time, yet in their working, there tends to be some distinction between them. And we have to be very careful to say that only this person of the Trinity is responsible for this, and only this person of the Trinity is responsible for that. But when it comes to the cross, only the Son of God died on the cross. But in a lot of the other areas, it's much more difficult to be that specific. Okay? Different roles, different relations, and different responsibilities are true within the Trinity. Does it be like in Matthew when Jesus was asked like when the second coming was, and he said only the Father knows? I mean, is that an example of that, where he would only, the Father knows the time? So there was a point in time there where Jesus is... Or is that because he, he's on our earth, I guess? So, so that would be part of it, too. The, the question is, um, that point where Jesus says only the Father knows when the Son will return, it could be that there's something that he sort of doesn't know while he's on earth. We don't know for sure what's going on there. But for whatever reason, the Son doesn't have that information available to him at the moment. Probably because he chose not to have it available to him. So yeah, that's, that's a spot where I tread lightly because it's hard to know exactly what's going on in the mind of Jesus and the mind of the Father with that, that thought, that interaction. Good question. Uh, but they have different roles, relations, and responsibilities. And catch this, they're distinct by paternity, generation, and procession. We're going to drill down into what that means as we go forward. But they're distinct in paternity, in generation, and in procession. Uh, this next paragraph gives us a lot of insight into what that means. God the Father is the person who ordains, establishes, judges, and appoints. He is also the person to whom worship is chiefly directed. The Son, Jesus Christ, appears as the Redeemer, the sacrificial victim, and the mediator. He is the guarantor of our salvation and the person whose likeness we are being molded. The Holy Spirit is the sanctifier, the first fruits of the inheritance of the glory to come. He dwells in our hearts by faith, although not to the exclusion of Christ, and is responsible both for giving us access to the Father and for producing the image of Christ in us. 
So in a very summary way of doing it, that's how the author here is describing the differences between the three. So as I was studying getting ready for this, uh, here's a couple books that I think are great or really helpful to me. Uh, one's called The Holy Spirit by a guy named Charles Ryrie. This would be a good one to pick up. It's not too overwhelming. If you want something bigger, John Walvoord has one called The Holy Spirit. This one's excellent. Every, I'll leave them up here. Every verse on the Holy Spirit is talked about in here. Uh, this one's a little bit newer. It's called The Holy Spirit by a guy named Ferguson. When I say newer, I mean it's 25 years old. These ones are a lot older than that. Not really that new. But this is another really good one. So you can check those out if you want to go deeper with this. Okay, uh, let's talk about the fact that the Spirit is God, and then we're going to drill down deeper into the idea of His function and what it means when we say procession. The Spirit is God. Let's start with the verse that's not listed. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16. In fact, we'll do 17 and 18. So you can write this in your book. 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to do 17 and 18. This is really, I think, the only verse we need to prove that, he's, that He is indeed deity. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. Alright, we could almost stop there. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face behold as in the mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image for glory to glory, just as from the Lord, comma, the Spirit. So twice in those two verses, the Spirit is called the Lord. Places where we see Jesus being called the Lord, we would say that's an indicator. That's a proof passage that Jesus is indeed deity. This would be a proof passage that the Holy Spirit is indeed the Lord Himself. On the same level as the Father, the same level as the Son. In Matthew 3, 16 and 17, this is just a parallel passage of Jesus' baptism where we see all three in action. In Matthew 28, that's where we see all three names there listed in how we are to baptize the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 2, we also see them together. We read that earlier where we see each one of them on the same level performing different functions in the growth and salvation of the believer. Uh, the Holy Spirit is sent. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Let's jump into what that means for a second. So, go down to that sentence that starts with, as far as. As far as we can understand, each person of the Trinity has had the same roles and relationships throughout eternity. So, it wasn't like God created the world... And then the three persons of the Trinity sat there looking at each other and said, you know what? You have the longest beard. Why don't you be the father? You've got a boyish complexion. How about you be the son? You're a little translucent. How about you be the Holy Spirit? Like, that wasn't how that conversation happened. We would say God from all of eternity has been the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That wasn't something that happened in response to creation. God doesn't change. Okay? Creation didn't change or alter Him. He's always been the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is eternally parental. The Son is eternally generated or begotten of the Father, though not created or dependent on Him for deity. And the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son. So when we say the Son is begotten, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. So John 20.21, 20, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I now send you. The Father sends the Son. He begets the Son. It doesn't mean that Jesus is dependent on the Father, but He is sent by the Father. And even when you watch them interact, there's a Father-Son type relationship there. The way He speaks of the Father and speaks to the Father. So that's always been that way. Why? I don't know. But it is. Now when it comes to the Holy Spirit, turn with me to John. I want you to look at these verses. John 14, 26 is where we'll start. And this is this word that keeps coming up, this idea of procession. We see that, we see that word in these verses. 14, 26 says this, Jesus speaking, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send 
in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. 1526. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So notice in chapter 14, Jesus says the Spirit is coming from the Father. In 1526, Jesus says, I will send to you. Jesus is sending the Spirit. He proceeds from the Father, but Jesus is also one who's sending him. So in both cases there, it seems like the Father is sending the Spirit. In chapter 15, it seems like the Son is sending the Spirit. And the words that is used there is this idea of proceeding from. Okay, so we didn't make up that word. It's just the word that's used in Scripture. We don't completely understand the word, but it's the word that's used in Scripture. When we were talking, uh, the elders were talking about, we were talking about the Holy Spirit and working on our doctrinal statement, making sure we've got everything in there that should be in there. And we talked about this doctrine of procession. It has been a key doctrine since the 300s in the church. And one of the guys said, but the word procession is so hard. Can't we just use a different word? The response was, is this the only word that's really been used since the 300s? If we were to change the word or make up a different word, we would fall out of line with the way it's been taught forever. I don't want to do that. And everyone in the room was like, oh, no, 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 yeah, let's not do that. So the word proceeds comes from 1526. And that's where the doctrine of the procession of the Holy Spirit comes from. Any questions? I don't think I have any answers besides what I told you, but any quick questions? This is where I said we'd be pushing your head a little bit. Thank you for not asking any questions. <laughs> Next page. At the top, the word for proceedeth, and there's the Greek word, is in the present tense in the original which has been accepted without any opposition as indicating the eternal and continual relationship between the Spirit the to the first person, to the Father. In other words, that word proceeds doesn't mean that he proceeded once from the Father. The word there means that it's an ongoing, continuous action that's always taking place. So the, whole, so the Holy Spirit is always being, is proceeding the Father and the Son. Okay, so it's always happening. The Holy Spirit is always going forth from the Father and the Son. It's always been that way. If you flip to the Old Testament, Psalm 104 verse 30 says, You send forth your Spirit. You, Father, send forth your Spirit. So it's not just a New Testament concept. In fact, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. We're going to look a little bit deeper at that in a moment. Among the several conclusions which form a part of the doctrine of procession is the fact that the procession of the Holy Spirit is eternal. One more quote. As Christ became an obedient son in doing the Father's will, so the Holy Spirit in procession became obedient to the Father and to the Son. Okay? We're going to go on. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So, let's go to Isaiah together. I think you'll want to look at this verse. Isaiah 63. So, there's large portions of the Old Testament, like, for example, through Exodus, uh, where you see God interacting with His people consistently, but it doesn't always reference the Holy Spirit directly. You see, the Lord... Yahweh, the Lord, Elohim, interacting with his people, but doesn't always say the Spirit. So here in Isaiah 63, it's talking about the days of Moses. Okay, so it's talking about the days of Moses. As we get through the passage, you're going to see Moses being referenced. But here it describes the role of the Holy Spirit during that exact same time period. So in the time period, reading Exodus, it kind of reads one way. But from Isaiah's point of view, looking back on the period of, of the Exodus, he sees the activity of the Holy Spirit on a higher level than we would see it just from reading Exodus, which is very interesting. In verse 9 it says this. I'm going to read all the way through 14. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy he redeemed them. 
and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then his people remembered the days of old, of Moses. Where is he, where is he who brought them up from the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like the horses in the wilderness, they did not stumble. As the cattle which go down to the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So, looking back on that, we see that the Holy Spirit was grieved. We see that the Holy Spirit was the one who was in the midst of them. It was the Holy Spirit who gave them rest, the Spirit of the Lord. So, it's interesting to see here throughout, okay, the Holy Spirit was a major part of what was happening in the people of Israel. Okay, it wasn't just the Father. We also see the Spirit directly involved with the people of Israel. He's just not mentioned all the time in the narratives, in the Old Testament narratives, but looking back, Isaiah gives us a glimpse of what was going on with the Holy Spirit. Um, let's bounce down to the, near the bottom, where there's that quote from Walverd. It says, a very definite, we're going to go there, a very definite relation of the Holy Spirit to creation is revealed in Scripture. However, with sufficient detail to include creation as one of the great undertakings of the Spirit of God. So, let's talk about creation for a second. What role did the Holy Spirit play in creation? <coughs> Genesis 1-2 talks about the Spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters. Do you remember that? The Spirit of the Lord is there. Now, the word ruach is the word used there in Genesis 1-2 describing the Spirit. The word, the Hebrew word is the Ruach of Elohim, the Ruach of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord was on the waters. Okay? So he is there and he's a part of it. But let's go to Psalm 33 to get a little bit more explanation of what he was doing during the time of creation. Psalm 33. So again, remember the word Ruach that's going to help us here understand what the verse is saying. Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts, and by the ruach of his mouth all the hosts. The word there for breath is the exact same word used in Genesis 1-2 describing the Spirit of the Lord. In a metaphorical way, this idea of the breath of the Lord isn't referencing His actual breath coming out. It's a reference to the Spirit Himself. Let's make sure that we're doing that correctly. Let's go to Job. There's a couple more verses. Job 26, verse 13. He talks about God's breath again. It says, By His breath the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. So, by His ruach the heavens are cleared. I'm going to give you another verse. Write this one down. Job 33. It's not in your notes. Job 33, verse 4. Job 33, 4 says this. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The word ruach is used in both of those, both of those parts of the verse. So you see them together. The Spirit of the Lord, the ruach of the Lord has made me. Who made him? The Spirit of the Lord. And it's the Ruach of the Almighty that gives life. So, we can go to multiple other verses where it talks about the fact that the breath of the Lord is used in creating the things that were made. So, we see in Genesis 1 that God speaks, let there be, and then there was. In Colossians chapter 1, we're told that all things are made by the Son, through the Son, for the Son, to the Son. So Jesus is a part of it. But here, it looks like the Holy Spirit maybe is the one who actually did a lot of the work. Okay, so now we're getting beyond what we know for sure. So this is speculative conversation, is all this is right now. It almost seems like 
the Father spoke it through the Son, and then the Holy Spirit kind of did it. It kind of seems like that. It's almost like you have an architect, and then the contractor, and then the carpenters. It's almost what it feels like here. Now, no illustration is perfect, so that's not a great illustration. But it seems like, it's almost like the Father organized it. He did it through the Son, for the Son, but then it was like accomplished by the power of his breath, that is his Ruach, his spirit. So it seems like all three are intricately involved in the creation of all things. The Holy Spirit here is given credit for breathing life into, into these people, okay? The Spirit of God is who made him. So, it's interesting to see the Holy Spirit in the work of creation. Uh, here's a quote that's not in your book, but I'm going to read it for you. Uh, in that Walverd book, it says, The word for breath is the same word translated spirit in Genesis 1-2. The term Spirit of God is a proper designation of the third person. And breath is a metaphorical use of that term. So he would say, when you see breath of the Lord, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. All right, let's go to the next page. All right, so we're going to talk about the work and gifts of the Spirit. But we're going to kind of start by focusing on the work of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. And then we're going to talk about the work of the Spirit in the life of the early church. In the life of Jesus. I'm just going to read a couple of these, of these and then we're going to stop and talk about it. Luke 1.15. We see John the Baptist is filled with the Spirit even while he's in the womb. Luke 135, it's the Holy Spirit who's involved in the Immaculate Conception. Luke 142, it's the Holy Spirit who fills Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom. In Luke 225, it's the Holy Spirit who's upon Simeon who recognizes the baby Messiah. It's the Holy Spirit who promised Simeon that he would see the Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit who led Simeon into the temple to actually see and touch Jesus. So before Jesus even arrives on the scene, the Holy Spirit is moving everything the way it needs to be moved to prepare the way and to prepare the coming of the Messiah. The Holy Spirit's all over it. He's prepping the people. He's prepping the situations. The Holy Spirit is completely involved with what's happening to prepare the coming of the Messiah. Once Jesus has come, Luke 3.16, Jesus is told, we're told that Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. Luke 3.22, the Spirit descends upon Jesus during his baptism. Luke 4.1, we're told that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led by the Holy Spirit to where? To the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness? He's tempted, but before he's tempted, what happens first? He fasts for 40 days, right? So, the Holy Spirit is directing him into a place, and it says wilderness. It doesn't say to the Hamptons. It doesn't say to a Hilton. It doesn't even say to a Motel 8, right? It says he's taking them out, him out to the wilderness. Like, this part of the world, when you say wilderness, it's not a nice place. Okay, so Jesus is in the wilderness. Outside, likely, for 40 days and 40 nights with no food and water. And then, Satan himself shows up to tempt him. And the Holy Spirit orchestrated this. He led, them to, he led him to that place. He didn't lead him to comfort, did he? He actually led him into a place that was very uncomfortable. He didn't even lead him necessarily away from temptation. He led him into a place where he would successfully fight against the tempter. Just realize that. The Holy Spirit didn't lead Jesus into places of more comfort, but sometimes led Jesus into places that were much less comfortable. We continue. Luke 4.14. After the temptation, Jesus returns to Galilee to minister in the power of the Spirit. So how did Jesus do his ministry? Not on his own power. While here on earth, he lived his life dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. He did his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Luke 4.18, he's in his hometown. I don't know if you remember that part where he opens the scroll and they end up wanting to kill him at the end. But he basically says, here where Isaiah says that the Holy Spirit is going to rest on someone who's coming, I'm that someone. The Holy Spirit is resting on me. Luke 5.17, it is by the power of the Spirit that Jesus heals. 
So as Jesus is healing the masses, it says he's not doing it in his power. He's doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke 10.21. You might want to mark that one down. Luke 10.21. That's that verse that talks about Jesus rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's just such a cool picture in my mind. I just, in, in my mind, I have Jesus and the Holy Spirit giving each other a high five and getting real excited about something. Um, like, you see them rejoicing together. So, let's just let's recognize a couple things here. Jesus was the Son of God. He helped speak the universe into being. And he had to rely every moment of every day on the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. He did his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. He healed others with the power of the Spirit. How much more do you and I need to be led by the Spirit? Live in the power of the Spirit. I mean, this is the Son of God who lived this way. You and I don't measure up to that, right? Like, we're completely dependent. Like, we can't even go a couple of days without food. And, and Jesus himself lives his life dependent on the Holy Spirit. That is a great lesson for us to learn. It's also important for us to remember, the Holy Spirit isn't committed to your comfort. He wasn't even committed to the Son of God's comfort. He was committed to taking Jesus to the places where he had to go to bring God the most glory. Even if it meant the wilderness, even if it meant discomfort, even if it meant an empty stomach for long periods of time, there's a good chance that you are going to be put into positions where the Holy Spirit leads you in a direction that you would not expect. If you think that the Holy Spirit and the American dream are the same thing, you're going to be devastated in this life because it's not. The American dream is comfort, success. Um, I'm in a position where nothing can harm me. Like, I'm above it all. Like, that's the goal is to get there, to achieve independence. That's not what the Holy Spirit talks about. But the life in the Holy Spirit can be the opposite. Things get worse. Things get hard. But He walks with you through it. And He glorifies the Father and the Son in it. So, I just want us to recognize that that happened to Jesus. And you and I aren't going to get off with something easier than Jesus. Because we really need some hard things in our life to change us and to grow us, to have us be more like Jesus. So, walking in the Spirit doesn't mean walking in comfort. Oftentimes it means the opposite. How does that make you feel? I'm not trying to be a downer, but like, I just want, I want to be honest with what the Scripture is saying. Okay? Any thoughts on that? Any reflections? You always hear the, the comforter but that doesn't mean comfortable. And right. he's here to help us through, exactly. to comfort us in the time of trouble, but not to make us comfortable. Well said, Bob. He's called the comforter, but that doesn't mean that he's called to make us comfortable. Well said. That can preach. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that sometime. <laughs> That's good. Now let's look at these quotes. The Holy Spirit was Christ's inseparable companion. All the activity of Christ was unfolded in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I love this next one. From womb to tomb to throne, the Spirit was the consistent companion of the Son. From womb to tomb to throne, the Holy Spirit was always there. Even before the womb, the Holy Spirit was moving pieces to prepare the way of the coming Messiah. The Spirit is ideally suited to be the chief witness for Christ. Why? Because he was the intimate companion of Jesus throughout his ministry. The Holy Spirit could be a witness because it was through the Holy Spirit and through the leading of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus actually did his ministry. So yeah, he's the perfect witness for Jesus, the Son of God. Okay? In the church. So we see the Holy Spirit in the work and the life of Jesus. And that continues into the church. In the same way that Jesus needed to be led by the Holy Spirit, chose to be led by the Holy Spirit, in the same way that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, the early church needed to be led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. They needed to do their ministry in the strength of the Holy Spirit. The first quote says, The Holy Spirit comes as the Spirit of Christ in such a way as to possess Him, the Holy Spirit, is to possess Christ Himself. And to lack the Holy Spirit is to lack Christ. The Spirit and Christ are virtually interchangeable terms pointing to their economic equivalence. 
while recognizing their personal distinctions. Economic equivalence. How about that as a way to describe the Holy Spirit in Jesus? Um, I don't have a good illustration to explain that. This is the best that I had today, and this is really bad. Um, so it's like you have two carpenters, all right? And one carpenter grabs a, hander, ham, a hammer, and the other carpenter grabs the hammer too, and they pound in the nails together. Like you see the Holy Spirit and Jesus working together. If you ever hire two carpenters and you see them building a house that way, fire one of them, okay? Because that's a terrible way to build a house. But that's like the picture that we kind of have there. We see the, the Son and the Spirit working together to build what God has called them to build. Uh, let's go to Romans 8, 9, and 10. It's on the top of page 7. I want you to catch this verse. This verse is really interesting. In this verse, you're going to see the Spirit referenced by Himself, then you're going to see the Spirit referenced as being the Spirit of God, that is the Father. And then you're going to see Him being referenced as the Spirit of Jesus. It's all referring to the Holy Spirit. But each description is still nevertheless true of Him. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. So who's in them? The Spirit of Christ. He does not... If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you... So catch that. Who's in you? The Bible says that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, that he lives in you. But the Bible also says Christ lives in you. So in those quotes before when it says they're almost inseparable, it's because both are true. Why? Because the Holy Spirit proceeds from Jesus. So to have the Holy Spirit in you is to have the Spirit of Christ in you. But yet they're distinct. Because that sounds like they're the exact same, there's no distinction. There is distinction, but yet they're one. And that's where we started this whole problem, right? They're three and they're one. So here we see that. The Spirit stands alone. But he's also called the Spirit of God, God the Father. And he's also called the Spirit of Christ. And he's also equated to Christ himself at the end of the verse. So yeah, it's, it's just complicated, right? I'd love to say something super profound right now, but there's nothing to say. Like, that's just what the verse says. So all of those things are true at the same time. He is the Spirit. And he is the Spirit of God the Father. And he is the Spirit of Christ himself. To have the Spirit in you is to have Christ in you. To have Christ in you is to have the Spirit in you. Theologically, those statements are all true at the same time. It doesn't mean our minds can understand all of them, but they're all true at the same time. So let's look at the Holy Spirit active in the early church. So Luke 12, 12, they're told that the Holy Spirit will intercede and help them in times of persecution. So Jesus knows what's coming and he prepares them, saying, The Holy Spirit's going to help you as hardship falls on you. John 16, 7. Jesus actually says, It's better to have the Holy Spirit than to have him. Okay, so if you have the option of having Jesus himself living in your guest room or the Holy Spirit living in your heart, Jesus says, vote for the Holy Spirit in your heart. Not many of us, I mean, that, that sounds against, like, it would be so nice just to walk over and knock on the door and say, hey, Jesus, I've got this question about sovereignty I want you to answer. But he says it's better for you to have the Holy Spirit in your heart than me living in your guest room and just kind of walking through life with you. He says it's better. Acts 1.8. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit that is connected to the mission that Jesus gives for the church. Okay? When the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses. So when the Holy Spirit comes, that's when this whole thing starts rolling. Okay? That's what he says. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the Holy Spirit then comes upon believers. And those believers begin to speak in tongues, in languages, languages that they use to then speak to the crowd in their languages that they might proclaim the goodness, the greatness, and the reality of Jesus in the gospel in a way that they can understand and respond to the gospel. So these aren't like spiritual languages that are not understood. These are actual languages. He's speaking French to French. He's speaking Spanish to Spaniards. Like, like That's what they're doing here. So the Holy Spirit is like... I mean, this is the passage where you see, like, the tongues of fire above their head. Like, he's visible. 
There's like a rushing wind sound, and then something changes. Like all of a sudden they can speak language that they couldn't speak before. So in a similar way, when Jesus came, and you could see him, and you could hear him, and it was clear that something had changed, when the Holy Spirit came, people had to bear witness to his presence. Something changed. They saw something. They heard something. They felt something. Something had changed. Okay, so when Jesus' son came on earth, people knew it. When the Holy Spirit came, people saw it, and they had to witness the reality that he had come. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Joel points to a day when the Spirit is going to come in power. And according to Acts, that day was the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit came on the church. Acts 2.33, the Spirit has been given in such a way that he was seen and heard, similar to the witness of the risen Christ. Acts 3.38, the Holy Spirit is now given to all who repent and believe. The Lord is faithful to his promise, and Peter, full of the Spirit, speaks to the rulers and elders. So, Acts 3.38, where it says the Holy Spirit is now given to all who repent and believe. We're doing great on time. In the Old Testament, do we see people receiving the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit? Can you think of any occasions or any people who experienced that? You can throw them at me if you can think of some. The, the judges. Yeah, so Gideon, Samson, Othniel. Like, there's several of them where they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Good. Who else? Yeah, so they're actual workmen. Do you remember their names? I don't. So anyways, there are these workmen. <laughs> and their names are really hard. Even if we were looking at them, we probably still couldn't say them. But God puts his hand on them and fills them with the Spirit that they might perform their work with excellence. Why? Because the tabernacle was like a representation of God on earth. Like, the excellence of God was to be seen in the excellence of the tabernacle. tabernacle. So he filled those people with the Spirit that they might be able to perform and execute what he had called them to do at a level that was where God wanted it to be. Who else? Daniel was filled with the Spirit, right? Was David? There are times when David is described as being filled with the Spirit. Even Saul, King Saul, was described to be filled with the Spirit. Now, was that a permanent, ongoing filling of the Spirit? Did they receive the Spirit permanently? No. No. It was kind of a come-and-go sort of thing. Like, in the moment when it was needed, God would send His Spirit to work in a special way in an individual. And then He may pull him back away. So in Psalm 51, when Jesus says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, we would say, Today, for you who have believed, that's not a prayer that you need to express. There's no nervousness that God's going to take His Holy Spirit from you. But for David... I mean, that was a real concern. Because oftentimes when, when we see God saying, I'm going to turn my face from you, he's removing his presence from those people. Sometimes all of his people. And the Holy Spirit was no longer filling any of his people. So it was temporary. It was usually to accomplish a purpose. And there's usually a goal in mind. Now, everyone who believes is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Permanently. And he changes you and grows you until you see God face to face. Okay? So that's different. Um, so just that's a distinction between the two. Acts chapter 1, verse 16 and 425, the Holy Spirit is given credit for the inspiration of the Old Testament. That's no little thing. Okay? That's no little thing. Um, Acts 431, this is a great passage. So some of the guys just got persecuted and they were released from prison. They go knock on the door and they go into this home. And in the light of persecution, uh, they express their faith in Jesus and they pray together. And the place where they were praying physically is shaken. And it says then they're filled with the Holy Spirit and then they go out and proclaim the reality of Jesus with even more boldness than before. They were persecuted to stop talking about Jesus. They get together, they pray, God fills them with the Spirit, and then they talk even more boldly than before. Persecution couldn't stop people who were being filled with the Spirit. Like what we talked about with Jesus. When they were filled with the Spirit and went out and proclaimed more, it didn't mean that the Spirit was always going to protect them from harm. Many of them lost their lives while being filled with the Spirit. So there's just a, 
there's a point in our faith, a point in our growth spiritually, where our biggest concern is not our own personal safety. Our biggest concern isn't even maintaining a certain quality of life or maintaining our life at all. These guys got to the point, as they were being filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit, where what they cared about the most was that their life was being used for the glory of God by whatever means possible and to whatever end they were led to. Sometimes that meant persecution. Sometimes that meant jail time. Sometimes that meant stonings. Sometimes that meant death. But they got to the point where, in response to the Spirit, they were okay with that. Like, they could look at that and they say, to the glory of God, to the glory of God. In the U.S., rarely are we, are we, rarely are we put in a position where we have to make a decision like that. But may God continue to push us in a direction where we're willing to live like that, even in a place where it's safe to do so. It might look like knocking on your neighbor's door. It might look like inviting someone over to dinner who you really don't even want to spend time with so that you might show them the love of Christ. There's so many ways that we can be doing stuff like that today. But oftentimes we think that God wants us to be comfortable. That is not what it looks like to be led by the Holy Spirit. Comfort is not his goal. He's a comforter, but he's not in it for your comfort. I already used it. So, in, uh, in Acts chapter 6, uh, you see that the widows weren't being taken care of, and the apostles were spending so much time that they couldn't focus on their teaching and praying. So, God says, grab some guys. Grab guys who are filled with the Spirit. Not just who have the Spirit, but who are filled with the Spirit. And have them begin to take care of the widows, and take care of the tables, and the distribution of food. So, he takes people who are filled with the Spirit. And then you see in Acts chapter 6, one of those men, a guy named Stephen is filled with the Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit. And there's a group of Jewish individuals there, and he begins to proclaim to them, by walking through the Old Testament, that this Jesus, the one you killed, he is the Messiah who is being pointed to all throughout the history of Israel. He is the one. The one you were looking for is the one you put on the cross. You killed him. How'd they respond to that? They stoned him to death. So the Spirit was leading him, was filling him, it was empowering him and giving him the words to speak. And the result of that leading of the Spirit was the loss of his life. What happens right before he dies? Do you remember? He looks up and he sees Jesus stand up at the right hand of the Father. Isn't that worth being stoned over? I mean, can you imagine that being the way your life ends? All these people see you proclaim his word to the point of death. What a testimony. And then you look up, and Jesus is ready for your homecoming. How beautiful is that? And all that was done by the leading and the power of the Spirit. He was speaking with the power of the Spirit and the guidance of the Spirit. And the result was the end of his life to the glory of God. And many heard and many believed. Acts 20, 17 through 35, the last one. It says, The Holy Spirit, I'm not intending this to be the theme. I guess, I, well, I guess I am intending it for it to be the theme, but the Holy Spirit leads Paul's travels and testifies to Paul of the imminent suffering that's coming. The Spirit does not then lead him away from the suffering, but leads him right into the suffering. He recognizes that as the Holy Spirit who appoints overseers over the flock, uh, that's something he talks about in there as well, but the Holy Spirit says there's suffering coming, and I'm going to take you into it. I will be with you, I will strengthen you, I will fill you, but here we go. Choppy waters are ahead, and we're not going around the waters, we're going through the storm. Okay? So that's a theme. To be a Christian who says, I want to be led by the Holy Spirit, I want to be filled by the Holy Spirit, I want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, is a Christian who's ready to say, not my life, Lord, it's yours. Do with me as you will. Are you ready for that? I think God's calling all of us as Christians to consider that. What would that look like? What does it look like to be a little uncomfortable in the power of God, in the power of the Spirit, in the leading of His will? Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you so much that each one of us here who have believed have your Holy Spirit. Uh, the Lord, it says in Scripture, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can even make attempts to resist your Holy Spirit. 
But God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit instead, that we would be asking you to be changing us, that we would be praying for boldness, uh, praying that we would be a life that would be used for your glory. Uh, Lord, we can't do that to ourselves. Only you can do that in us, to us, and through us. So God, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Allow us to be people who are bold about our faith, falling deeply in love with you, that we say our life is not our own, and we'll live it however you've destined for us to live it. We ask that in your son's name. Amen. Thank you all for coming.